horror fans. Are you fed up with Facebook's community standards? Tired of Twitter's endless political arguments? Did you ever wish there was a social media app just for you? Wish no longer and go download the Slasher app, available on Apple and Android devices. Talk about your favorite movies, games, books, characters, and more. Share your opinions on artwork, podcasts, cosplay, music, and more with the people you're actually trying to reach. Trying to find that spooky someone? They even have Slasher dating. If you're a horror fan looking for your people, join the Slasher app today. This is not a test. This is not a test. Please remain calm. Unburied dead are coming back to life and seeking human victims. Seeking human victims. phenomenon had taken hold of the United States and had spread like wildfire. But tonight's film focuses on the perversion of a beloved and wholesome figure in pop culture all around the world, sacred to children and families alike. Santa Claus! But in this case, portrayed as a sadistic, bloodthirsty slasher. The movie is, of course, the infamous 1984 Silent Night, Deadly Night. And we're going to look at the film as well as the reaction and the cultural shockwave that it caused upon its release. All that and much more on a special Holiday edition, the third Seeking Human Victims Christmas special. I am your host, the Rev, Dan Wilson, and I have a bunch of evil elves with me tonight. Backing me up, the lovely Dreamboat Annie. Naughty! <laughs> and making his debut on the show. A guy I've wanted to get on the show for a long time. He did an episode, the very first episode of Wrestling with Horror over on the One Good Scare YouTube channel. He is a dear friend of mine, uh, one of my best friends in the world from pro wrestling, and a guy who I've looked up to for many years, not only in wrestling, but like he's he helped guide me to a lot of great movies as well. Um, but one thing that we immediately clicked on as we had a shared love of horror movies and this has always been one of his favorites so welcome jeff g bailey rev it is an honor to be here on the warm side of the door to talk about one of the greatest horror movies of all time a movie so festive we watch it at halloween 
and at Christmas. So what can you say about that? If you're getting the double feature in the Bailey household, you really have to carry some weight. (laughs) And Silent Night, Deadly Night does just that. It is a really seedy and dirty feeling movie in a lot of ways, and that enticed me towards it in the very beginning. I remember my first exposure to it was seeing some of the controversy after its release on an Entertainment Tonight episode, and I was about four years old. That was right about the time that it came out, Um, and that stuck with me, and of course, I I tracked it down, and uh, went on to, to see it, and it also has become a favorite of mine. And Annie, I, I think this might have been your first full viewing of the film, am I right? Uh, yeah, definitely, for sure. Okay, awesome. So let's waste no further time and dig into the very broken and disturbed psyche of one Billy Chapman on the Coroner's Report. The Coroner's Report. So before we talk about what brought us to Silent Night, Deadly Night, let's look at the history of holiday horror. Christmas time has always kind of been a spooky time of year in addition to Halloween, though the bright lights and jolliness of the Yuletide are certainly what is focused on nowadays wasn't always the case. If you can go back to 1901 to the first silent holiday horror film, it was a short from the UK called Scrooge, a.k.a. Marley's Ghost. Of course, the first of many, many to come adaptations of A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. We can look at the origin of the killer Santa in 1972's Tales from the Crypt. So I did find it interesting, and Jeff, you might could weigh in on this, that there was a, a lot of controversy on Silent Night, Deadly Night, just surrounding the fact that the killer was Santa, but this had not been the first time this had been done in a horror film. No, it's crazy. I mean, I grew up in Columbia, South Carolina, which is a super religious city. So uh, the movie never played in Columbia. They stopped it before it ever played because I guess I think like 84, right, where where the horror movies in particular weren't like released nationally all at the same time. They would kind of be doled out because I had seen the. at the movies with Siskel and Ebert talking about how awful this movie was before it was even supposed to come out in Columbia. And then it just, it just kind of never happened. They just said, you know what, we're not going to show this. And, uh, you know, we just had to wait for the video, but I had seen the trailer and seen, you know, the entertainment tonight you had talked about and the, the Siskel and Ebert. And, um, you know, I was really excited about the movie because, I was about 19 then, so I was in, you know, full horror movie phase of going to see everything that came out, and we still had drive-ins that showed horror movies, so, yeah, that was a, it was a missed opportunity, certainly, but, you know, it certainly built anticipation for when I finally got to see it. 
Oh yeah, and it had a, a quite a life after that initial release, and we'll talk a lot more about that moving on. But uh, we started to see, of course, the rise of the slasher film around this time. Uh, Mario Bava's Twitch of the Death Nerve, a.k.a. A Bay of Blood, was just a few years prior. And then Black Christmas comes along in 1974, directed by Bob Clark. You can go back and check our previous episode covering Black Christmas. Uh, we actually re-aired that just two weeks ago, so that's out there for free on the podcast feed. Uh, of course, the legendary 1978 Halloween occurs and is sort of the father of all modern slashers at that point. Uh, and, and also the holiday horror film, because it takes place on a holiday. And this becomes something that every studio seems to want to try to capitalize on. They all want their own holiday horror movie. So in 1980, you get Friday the 13th, and you get Christmas Evil, another Killer Santa movie. And you get to All a Good Night, which is also another Killer Santa movie. And then you have New Year's Evil and Terror Train, which take place on New Year's Eve. And then in 1981, My Bloody Valentine and Blood Rage, which takes place on Thanksgiving. And in 1982, you have Blood Beat, which is this weird, crazy uh, movie about uh, this chick that gets possessed by a samurai ghost and then goes on a killing spree at Christmas time. And they just added that on Shudder recently. It's, it's definitely worth checking out. Uh, then there was a movie in 1983 called The Being, which took place at Easter. And then there was a 1984, as we get into the year of Silent Night, Deadly Night, it wasn't even the only Christmas horror movie that year. We had Don't Open Till Christmas, which kind of flipped the script because in that movie, it was actually Santas that were being killed instead of a killer Santa. So it's kind of the reverse. And then we had, of course, the legendary and iconic Gremlins, but it was Silent Night night that caused a controversy and an uproar like we had never seen up until that point in the world of slasher films and so let's look at the history let's look at how silent night deadly night came to be it all started with a writer named paul Kamey. he was a senior at harvard when he wrote a script called he sees you when you're sleeping about a killer loose in a small town on christmas eve he sent that to Scott Schneid, who was a producer. He was working at the William Morris Agency at the time in their training program, and he knew a guy named Dennis Whitehead who was working as a development guy reading scripts for a different production company. They took that original script and read it, but they didn't love it. They did love the idea of the killer Santa, so they hired a new writer, a guy named Michael Hickey, to write an entirely new screenplay based on that concept, and Whitehead and Schneid paid him 500 bucks a piece out of pocket to write it. This final script was a collaborative effort written by Hickey, but it was shepherded by Snide and Whitehead. And Hickey was fascinated by the idea of what makes a killer and the origin of Billy. And that's what really drove his passion for the story. And I do think that the story of Billy, like having this background where you're pretty empathetic towards all of the shit that he goes through, makes him quite a bit different than a lot of the other slashers of the day. Yeah, I think that's all fine and well, but I really think that we're really glossing over that Paul Kamey sounds like he really got fucked there. I mean, a little bit. Like, I don't know what happened. I don't know if they paid him for that script or whatever. So, like, I, I mean, maybe the script sucked. If, if the script sucked, <laughs> he didn't get fucked. Yeah, but it was still his idea. They're like, yeah, thanks for the idea. Fuck off. Like, we're not going to make your script, but we are going to steal your idea. And never speak your name again. See ya. 
Well, they, they took a portion of his idea. They didn't steal his idea. They, they took his idea and made it their own. And, and I, I agree, Dan, that, you know, the fact that you, it's about the killer and, and you are empathetic to the killer, where pretty much everything up to that point had just been about the mystery is who the killer is, and he's killing a bunch of people that you may or may not care about, but, but you actually do care about Billy. So they, they really do a great job of building that throughout the movie. I mean, the little kid does a great job, and then, you know, adult Billy, who they shoot with nothing but full close-up with all these facial tics and stuff. It's, uh, it's really great. Yeah, absolutely. And and back to what Annie said as well, I, I do think that they probably, whether it was right or wrong, they they probably justified it by the fact that the only thing they really took from that original script was that it was about a killer Santa and that that had been done already a few times before. But speaking of the script that Michael Hickey ended up doing, the final script, it was actually heavily influenced by The Shining, of all things, not overtly. Uh, you really wouldn't be able to tell that right off the, the top of your head. But once you like hear him explain it, you can start seeing some of them, including things like Grandpa kind of being influenced by the Scatman Carruthers character and other things. Um, certainly an t- entirely different world, but kind of cool to know that. Um, it was originally known as Sleigh Ride throughout its early production, and TriStar Pictures decided to change the name to Silent Night, Deadly Night at the last minute. They should have gone with the jingling. (laughs) I love Silent Night, Deadly Night. I think that's a great, great, great name. It is. It's one of my favorite horror movie names ever. It just rolls off the tongue and is so vicious in, in a variety of ways. I mean, everything about it's great. I mean, the very first poster with Santa going down the chimney with his axe, and you just think, okay, this they're definitely going for it, and uh, people seem to get a little upset by that. It's it's like very 1998 ECW pay-per-view in like the best way possible. I see what you're saying there. Yeah, it, no, it was just like, it, it It pulls no punches. It goes straight for the jugular, it, like through, from beginning to end. But like, that's what I mean. Like, it, like that's like the type of imagery that it like, that's the feeling, the tone that it kind of evokes with that type of name. You're like, oh, this is going to be violent. And well, the director's cut really delivered on that. So, you know. Yeah, I mean, the movie starts so strong. I mean, the the murder of Billy's mother and father and the rape. And uh, I don't know if you know this, but the mother was the, the lovely partner of Adrian Barbeau driving the Lamborghini and Cannonball Run. So I, I had seen that as a younger man and had lusted after that spandex-clad blonde, and then I got to see her raped and the throat slit, so it wasn't quite as good as just seeing her naked, but it was something. <laughs> so as they're, they're looking for money to get the movie made, uh, they, they find this guy named Ira Barmack, 
and they they get with TriStar. They get the budget to make the movie. So at this point, this studio wants their own Friday the 13th. They want their own Halloween. And they actually chose the Sleigh Ride script over a Danny Kaye Christmas movie that was in production. You know, if you don't know who Danny Kaye is, of course, at least modern fans will get the reference from uh, Christmas Vacation where Clark Griswold goes on his fucking rant about being Crosby tap dancing with Danny fucking Kaye. Uh, but that's who he is. Uh, and Silent Night, Deadly Night beat that out in terms of getting funding from TriStar Pictures. Thank God. <laughs> it almost fell through at the last second, though. The, there was a squabble over sequel and remake rights with the original creators. Uh, they, they really wanted to retain them, but they were strong-armed into giving them up to get the movie made because the snow was starting to melt in the shooting locations. So let's talk about the director. The famed Charles Sellier was the director for this film, and this was not the case where uh, he was a pretty famous director, but this was not a situation where this was like his idea or brainchild and that he brought a vision to life or anything like that. He was a little more of a hired gun on this than most of the things. He's most famously known for creating both the book and later TV series of The Life and Times of Grizzly Adams. And he also made a lot of uh, Christian-friendly entertainment. Uh, he did things like In Search of Noah's Ark, uh, In Search of Historic Jesus, Mark Twain's America, and Breaking the Da Vinci Code. Uh, he did also make a pretty kick-ass made-for-TV Legend of Sleepy Hollow movie with Jeff Goldblum as Ichabod Crane, if anybody remembers that. I don't. Nope, but I'm going to find it and watch it. <laughs> I, I think I want to see it as well. Yeah, I'm pretty curious. Like, if there was anybody who was born to play Ichabod Crane, it's Jeff Goldblum. He does have their gangly demeanor. <laughs> Charles Sellier had a great life. He passed away in 2011 at age 67. Um, he, he didn't talk about this movie a lot. It was, I don't know, I wouldn't say it was a blemish on his record, but if you look at the other, like, mostly super family-friendly shit that he did in his career, this certainly stands out. But there is a pretty cool interview with him on the Scream Factory Special Edition Silent Night, Deadly Night Blu-ray, and it's just an audio interview that was done with him before he passed. But he does talk fairly favorably about the film in it. That's really the only place that that's, that he's kind of on record doing so. All right. And then the music was handled by Perry Botkin Jr. He was a successful composer. He'd worked with Bobby Darin, Harry Nielsen, Gary Crosby, The Letterman, Ed, Ed Ames, and more. Um, he... He had done a lot of movie scores as well, but had not had great success in that. He was more known for his other musical collaborations. But um, he did win some awards. Uh, he, he did the Young and the Restless theme, which was pretty popular. But um, I love the music in this movie, both the score, which is very ambient and uh, just a lot of like creepy noises and tones. And, you know, some christmas e sounds like jinglings of bells and things like that. But no, this is not really like a straight melody 
uh, in, in many cases, so I, I, but I think it's pretty cool. But also, <laughs> the original Christmas music that they had done for the movie in lieu of paying rights for more famous songs. Holy shit. Yeah. <laughs> Holy shit. It's awesome. Yeah, there it was is like... amazing. Like, I looked over and was like, what is this song? Do you, I was like, do you know this Christmas song? Because I, I thought I knew all the Christmas songs. And he had to like pause the movie and explain to me that he was like, no, all Christmas songs that you hear in this film are originals. And I, it's just, that's just amazing to me. And they're like, not half bad. No, they're they're quite enjoyable. I know they eventually put out a, a soundtrack record where you could you could get the songs and stuff because people really did like it. It's a it's a strong score and soundtrack. It's a it's really well done. Like listen, there's a whole episode of King of the Hill where they struggle like hard trying to write a new Christmas song. And they regularly pile praise upon Mariah Carey for being able to write a new Christmas song because, you know, she wrote All I Want for Christmas is You. That's a new song that she wrote. Um, Because it's like all the Christmas songs have been written. So that's seriously impressive. I'm... That's honestly probably, like, the greatest accomplishment of this movie. <laughs> yeah. I, warm Side of the Door is the one that always gets me. That shit, I can't decide if it sounds like a Folgers coffee commercial <laughs> or... <laughs> but it's awesome. It's, or a, it's one of those things that sometimes I just, I just hit the chapter button back and just listen to it. <laughs> A second time, you know, and just kind of admire it. Like, I don't even know what this is, but it's something special. It's a Campbell's Soup commercial. Yeah, it really has. It evokes all of those 80s vibes. Uh, like, it's a sitcom intro, a, a Folgers coffee, Campbell's Soup. Like, I don't know. Like, it just has that sense of familiarity, which is what makes it good. I think that what makes all of it good, because it all just sounds very familiar and and comforting in many ways, which is great up against all of this horrible imagery. Well, it's the great montage of Billy fitting in at work, you know, straightening things up and his boss looking at him with admiration. You get to see those fine Return of the Jedi, Jabba the Hutt toys on the shelf. Oh, yeah, that's when I was like, oh, did he, is this where the part of the movie where he gets his own, uh, uh, 80s sitcom and then he starts like picking things up and turning over his shoulder and smiling so I'm like oh yes he does yes he did get his own 80s sitcom okay <laughs> that scene is really great and does a lot to like it accomplishes a fuck ton as far as introducing adult Billy and where he's at at that point in his life and that, you know, he's in a pretty good place, but that he just can't get past his issues. And uh, I just, I love everything about it. It's such a great scene. Yeah, it really furthered my hate for 
the nuns, well, specifically Mother Superior and her, just like, let's just not tell him what happened and let him cope at all. And then let him get a job at a toy store. That's not at all going to backlash at all. Oh, God. Yeah, there's there's so much to be said about that. And, and we'll definitely talk more about Mother Superior and the nuns here in just a little bit. Uh, let's talk about the cameraman, uh, the director of photography, Hannig Schellerup, a dude that worked in the electrical department on Halloween 2. He was in Nightmare or worked on Nightmare on Elm Street as well as Death Race 2000 and more. Special effects were handled by Rick Josephson, who also worked on Cujo, Fright Night 2, and get ready for it, the High School Musical series. So, you know, just like top notch work. And then the cast, of course, the most important part of the film because it doesn't work without Billy. Robert Brian Wilson as Billy Chapman, not an actor. Actually, prior to this film, he was approached about the role by a casting agent while he was eating in a restaurant with his wife and decided to go to the audition on a whim. He got the role because he tried to play Billy more as a pure, good-hearted person who snaps as opposed to this over-the-top menacing killer. And he focused uh, on making the pre-Rampage Billy as genuine and likable as possible so that you would also just totally feel sorry for him but also be able to hate him when he snapped they said he got along well with charles tellier but said he was very professional and almost clinical as a director that he wasn't one of those like artistic oh give me more of this or this is your motivation type guys it was just more okay like all right here's the shot list let's get it done wilson said he was coached during the filming by actress lillian chauvin who played mother superior she was also a professional acting teacher and was kind of his mentor on this and was, was really good to him and helped him through it. Well, it's, it's nice she did something nice for the poor boy. <laughs> <laughs> and then the other actors we saw there, Danny Wagner was eight-year-old Billy, also did a great job. And then Jonathan Best was little cherub-cheeked five-year-old Billy, who, you know, super cute kid and just like really pulls you in from the beginning, honestly. Yes. He was best Billy. <laughs> and then we had Alex Burton as Ricky Chapman at 14, the uh, older Ricky. Of course, I don't know who the baby was. I didn't bother to look up his credit. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> Uncredited baby. Uh, the four-year-old Ricky was played by an actor named Max Broadhead. And then, oh, I'm sorry. No, I did find it. The, it was a girl. Her name was Melissa Best, and she was infant Ricky. I'm going to guess that it was Jonathan Best's baby sister. <laughs> and then, as we mentioned, we had Lillian Chauvin as Mother Superior. She was a French-American actress. She was also a TV host, director, writer, and an acting teacher. She was born in Paris. Uh, she had a career on French radio and on stage in England. She moved to the U.S. in 1952 to start her acting career and start in minor television roles before making her film debut in 1957. Uh, she had a 60-year-long career, largely of supporting roles. Some of her films include The Other Side of Midnight, Private Benjamin, 
Deadly Night, Predator 2, and Steven Spielberg's Catch Me If You Can. She was also on The X-Files, Murder, She Wrote, Star Trek Deep Space Nine, Friends, Magnum P.I., Malcolm in the Middle, and more. So do you think because Billy was coached by her that his acting performance was chauvinistic? <laughs> hey, I'm the dad here. <laughs> I could, I couldn't, I couldn't help it. Uh, that's all I could think about the whole time you were talking. I'm sorry. You can continue with the podcast now. I'll mute myself. <laughs> Mother Superior, as you mentioned earlier, one of the nastiest characters in a film about a murderous Santa. <laughs> Uh, really, maybe the true villain of the film in many ways, besides the first killer Santa. Yeah, he was pretty rotten himself. My God. <laughs> that was a cold-blooded motherfucker. Yeah, that guy was woof. Uh, <laughs> and you know, it's one of those things also, it's like you never know what happened to him. Yeah. Right. Do they, do they do they mention like did he get locked up or anything? Like I don't think it's ever addressed in the film what happened to the original Santa that killed his parents. I don't think so. No, and I think that's kind of like part of the reason why he's so fucked up. I mean, Santa Claus is still out there, and you know what Santa Claus does. Well, I mean, because, like, that's the whole, like, when he's out killing people, when Billy's out killing people as Santa, and she's like, he's dressed as Santa. They're like, what? Santa? Committing crimes dressed as Santa? What? Like, it's the first time they've ever heard it, literally. <laughs> Never. Who would do that? Well, that's how people felt when the movie came out, I guess. How dare they? That's what? Santa. <laughs> the original Santa was played by Charles Deercart. Deercop, by the way. Uh, he was most recognized for supporting roles in movies like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and The Sting. He was also in the TV series Police Woman from 1974 to 1978. But yes, a great performance as just a cold-blooded, nasty bastard, as Jeff mentioned. Really sets the tone for the film. Because it's like the grandpa gives the warning, and then he sees the Santa. And you're immediately filled with dread when you see the Santa. Uh, because you've already seen him take out the gas station clerk in cold blood. And then he does shit even more heinous to the parents. And... All of that pulled off. You never see the guy's full face. You only see the nose up. So that's some nose up <laughs> facial acting pulling all, off all of that nastiness. It's quality stuff. He is evil. And then looking at some of the other cast quickly, we had Gilmer McCormick as Sister Margaret, uh, mainly known for her work on stage. Uh, she was a big part of the original run of Godspell in the early 70s. Uh, then we had Tony Nero as Pamela, Britt Leach as Mr. Sims. I wanted to mention him just because he's kind of close to the home base of the Seeking Human Victims ob uh, operations. He was 
born in Gadsden, Alabama, and graduated from Macaulay Prep School in Chattanooga, Tennessee in 1956. Huh. And, of course, a famous character actor. He's a lot of things. Um, he was the hick bartender Dan Oldham in Jackson County Jail. He was Sergeant Cook in Night Warning, uh, Mr. Potter in The Last Starfighter, and Anthony Michael Hall's dad in Weird Science, as well as Reg the Hunter in The Great Outdoors with John Candy. Mr. Sims is awesome. I fucking love it because he, he's like, he's, he's mostly a baby face, but, you know, he's just, just a little bit of an asshole, just a little bit. Just a little sleazy. He's got to get things done, you know. A manipulative prick. I mean, he's a business owner in the 80s. I don't know if he deserved his fate, but at that point, Billy wasn't really sparing anybody. I mean, well, he I... had Jen Billy up, you know, telling him, you know what Santa does. And Billy said, oh, yeah, I know what Santa does. Huh? <laughs> well, and also, it was Mr. Sims that put him in the Santa suit. So I guess really that was his fatal sin was, you know, even making him relive that trauma in the first place. I mean, I lost track of who supposedly was naughty. I mean, after, like, the third kill, I was like, okay, what did they do specifically that he saw and knows directly about? So, you know. I think after a while, it really didn't matter. Yeah. Santa knows when you've been naughty. That's that's just how it works. He just assumes. (laughs) Then we had Nancy Borgenike as Mrs. Randall. She was also in Halloween 4 as the woman attendant, as well as Tripwire and Neon City. Uh, we had famed screen queen Linnea Quigley as Denise, one of the great kills in really in horror history up until that point, and it really still stands out. I mean, it was recently parodied on the last drive-in last year when, when Joe Bob and Darcy reenacted it, uh, when they showed Silent Night, Deadly Night 2. And uh, it, I just love that kill so much. Of course, talking about where Billy picks her up and impales Denise on the deer antlers. It is classic. I just wish that, like, the antlers he had impaled her on were, like, the pointier ones and not the new nubbier ones. They would have gone through a lot cleaner and not required so much like gross stretching. <laughs> the gross stretching is the lure. You're like, oh, look at it stretch. I can't wait to see it pop through. Oh, there it goes. Yeah, it's a pretty underrated effects work here. Pocket. From Rick Josephson, it wasn't, uh, you know, it wasn't anything like new, like Tom Savini and Rick Baker and all those guys had already been doing a lot of this stuff. But, man, it was all quality. It was no high school musical. (laughs) And that that impalement on the deer antlers is as good as anything. Well, I mean, that claw hammer in Mr. Sam's head. Is pretty top notch, and and the blood spatter when he hits him with it, it's really bright red and looks like blood. It's it's a really good effect. And the bow shot, the arrow through the 
chest. Oh, you know, I don't. I almost forget about the arrow kill every time I rewatch it, and every time it happens, I do a little dance. <laughs> <laughs> that one's great, but but I mean, short run for Linnea Quigley. She wasn't quite like the big scream queen she would go on to become. There, uh, she had just done Savage Streets with Linda Blair. She had mainly only done like Charlie Bla- Charlie Band movies and Graduation Day prior to that. But then the next year she popped off huge in The Return of Li- Living Dead as Trash doing the infamous Naked Graveyard dance to Do You Want a Party by 45 Grave in one of the greatest scenes in horror movie history and uh, awakened the sexuality of many a young man. <laughs> And then, of course, she would go on to do all kinds of great cult horror movies like uh, Sorority Babes and the Slime Ball, Bolarama, Nightmare Sisters, Creepazoids, Night of the Demons, Witch Trap, and more. And then we had the great Will Hare as Grandpa Chapman. I fucking love Grandpa Chapman. He's so ah. creepy and unnerving. And he's famous for playing these crusty old figures in lots of fatherly grandpa roles. But most famously, Back to the Future, of course. And also, he was in Grim Prairie Tales, which is a great little gem. He looks like he would play, like, the sweetest grandpa, though. He looks like it, but he's a real creep, (laughs) at least in this movie. Well, yeah, in this one, but, like, at one point, he looks like he's trying really hard to be creepy, but also, like, trying really hard (laughs) to not be a silly grandpa. Because I think in real life, he's a silly grandpa. Probably was a silly grandpa. I can't grandpa. imagine he's still alive. <laughs> right, playing playing a nursing home bound grandpa in 1984. I would imagine he is no longer with us. <laughs> What'd you think about Will Hare, Jeff? That is an unsettling scene. I mean, it's <laughs> one of those things that you just because you're like, okay, grandpa's like out of it, you know, and. A lot of people have probably been to nursing homes to visit relatives and seen people in that condition and and know what that's like. And it's it's really awful if you're a kid and you have to go see it. Um, so I, I, I felt for poor Billy. And then Grandpa turns on him and just scares the ever-loving shit out of him. I mean, ruins Christmas forever for that boy who was so excited about Christmas <laughs> moments prior so it it really is like wow what is this guy's problem um i just remembered that i actually have thoughts on that (laughs) (laughs) okay so if you will think back to that scene both billy's father and billy's mother refer to his grandfather as dad So I am choosing to believe that the reason that grandpa is so fucked up is because his kids got married and had kids. (laughs) I think you just made this movie movie a lot creepier than it probably is. Like the whole thing is like so creepy and like it was already creepy. And then I was like, wait a minute. Did they both just call him dad? They do. <laughs> and like they both refer to them as like as if they were as if he were was their father. And like the dad said like or the doctor refers to the dad, like to Billy's dad is like, let's talk about your father. 
And then the mom's like, we're going to leave you here alone with your creepy grandpa. But they, they're both referring to him as if he's both of their fathers. So I'm, I think that might be the root of all the problems. And then we had Tara Buckman as Ellie Chapman. Jeff already mentioned his fondness for her. Just the last cast member I want to mention was Don Shanks. He was really just a stuntman. He was just the Santa climbing in the window. He went on to play Michael Myers in Halloween 5. So it was interesting that, for at least for like half a scene, the same dude played Michael Myers and Billy Chapman. Hmm. Wow. And then the shooting dates and locations, it was shot from December of 1993 to February of 1994 in Heber City and Midway, Utah. So it it was actually shot in the state they said it was located in. Yeah, I mean, it looked like it based on, like, the mountains in the background. Like, the, the only option was, like, that or Colorado. Which I gotta say, that made for some great shooting. That was a great background to have those giant snowy mountains in the background of your Killer Santa Christmas movie. I guess I could have done Wyoming. Brittany would kill me if I didn't mention Wyoming. I had to throw it in there. (laughs) All right, well. So that we know that... Since there was a guy that played Michael Myers and Billy Chapman for a quarter of a scene, I think we could say that's a bit odd and a bit interesting. And with that odd and interesting fact, let's open the door to the auditorium. Strange truths and morbid curiosities will be revealed inside the auditorium. Perhaps the most fascinating, odd, and interesting fact about Silent Night, Deadly Night is that it opened the same weekend as A Nightmare on Elm Street in 1984, and it was on a pace to outgross Nightmare on Elm Street before being unceremoniously yanked from theaters due to all of the controversy surrounding it. All of that controversy is probably the most famous uh, part of the film, but it's also what drew a lot of people to it. It's one of the things that drew me to it. You tell me I can't have something, the first thing I'm going to do is want to see it. You know, if you tell me that I I can't handle something or something is is too much for my sensitive eyes, then the morbid curiosity is going to get the best out of me and most people nine times out of ten. So, you know, there's this this giant outcry when the movie came out. It was picketed by angry parents. Uh, we'd already seen the Santa killer, as I'd mentioned. So it was kind of interesting that this happened. And why did that happen? Well, it was all kind of tied to the marketing, really. Uh, those movies did not necessarily get these mainstream marketing campaigns. But TriStar Pictures invested in the film and actually had these commercials airing in prime time. And in some cases during the day, uh, there was apparently a, a case where one of the commercials aired during a green Bay Packers game that <laughs> so it's seen by a lot of families and that got a lot of complaints. And then I think the one that tipped it over the edge was that there was a, one of the commercials aired during an episode of little house on the prairie, uh, little house on the prairie <laughs> during the afternoon. 
And of course, lots of angry mothers were called at the stations. God. They were going for it, no doubt. I mean, and the big hoopla came out of Milwaukee. So that was obviously because they put that thing on during a football game on a Sunday afternoon. I mean, yeah, people were not thrilled to see Santa going down the chimney with an axe in his hand. Yeah, the stars kind of responded to the controversy, but most of them tried to lay low. Uh, Lillian Chauvin had said, you know, that she thought it kind of was a mistake for the publicity campaign to center on Santa Claus and to the level it did. Robert Brian Wilson said initially he was super ashamed by the controversy and just like pretended like he wasn't even in the movie because he took so much shit over it. But later after seeing, you know, how appreciated it was and that people did really love the film and love what he did, you know, he's changed his tune and just really embraced it, which is great to see. Yeah, I mean, there's a whole, you know, crowd of people out there that want to meet and see this guy you know that convention thing is that he should be able to to survive off that income if we are actually able to do conventions again and the following year knock on wood yeah big hopes there's a there's still a lot of demand for uh, all across the horror convention circuit. So he's definitely one that I would still like to get a, a picture and an autograph with for sure. Amen. Siskel and Ebert rear their heads again, as they have in so many of the stories of these slasher films of the 80s and how they really campaigned and really kind of did some shitty things. Uh, in terms of how much they hated these movies. Like, I'm all for a movie critic being able to have their opinion. And, uh, you know, I think art needs to be criticized and critiqued. I don't think that's a problem at all. But I do think when you try to go after people's livelihoods, like they did in many cases over movies they didn't like, uh, in this case, they tried to shame Charles Sellier, the writers, the producers, telling them shame on them. TriStar Pictures should be ashamed and that they had nothing to be proud of. Um, you know, there were other movies where they gave out people's home addresses and shit like that. So, you know, I, I, I have mixed emotions about Siskel and Eber. Neither one of them are here to defend themselves anymore, but fuck, uh, they were some real assholes to slasher movies. Yeah, Siskel was the bigger cunt of the two, but Ebert was was pretty much the same with the slasher movies as far as just going overboard with the criticism. It's like, okay, you don't like it, but everybody who watches these movies doesn't hate women and want to kill women, which is pretty much what they said on a regular basis. Yup. Those are facts. Uh, you can go back to the, the slasher season back in the archives over on Patreon, patreon.com slash one good scare, a dollar a month gets you full access to all of that. And uh, we talk extensively about Siskel and Ebert's crusade against all of the various slasher movies in that season. Um, Charles Sellier, we mentioned, you know, was a family content director in most cases with Grizzly Adams and his Christian films. And <laughs> so he was not super comfortable shooting the gore scene. So apparently editor Michael Spence 
was in charge of the really super gory scenes. He, he did a great job. Oh, yeah. You know, we talked about uh, the, the outrage again, Siskel and Ebert. Mickey Rooney was another guy who was just like vocally against this film because, of course, he'd starred in a lot of famous films and Christmas movies over the years and was sort of looked at this wholesome voice of Hollywood. Uh, of course, that didn't stop him from taking their fucking money in 1991 when he starred in Silent Night, Deadly Night 5, The Toy Maker. So, you know, everybody's got a price, even Mickey Rooney. <laughs> yeah, and that's a much shittier, cheaper-made movie, by the way. So, <laughs> fuck him. It is. Now, it's a weird, weird piece of shit, not without its merits, and we're definitely going to cover it here in about four years on the annual Silent Night, Deadly Night Christmas as we move <laughs> forward here. But, uh, yeah, I just always found that hilarious that Mickey Rooney was part of that campaign against this movie, and yet, when it come time to give him a check, he was all about it. <laughs> Imagine that. Is Mickey Rooney, like, known for, you know, being one to not take a check? <laughs> I mean, no. But... Well, he was old as shit by that point. I mean, he was practically on his deathbed, I would imagine. I mean, so he probably needed that check at that point. I mean, Mickey Rooney was one of the biggest box office stars of all time, but he probably made, you know, less than a hundred grand for all that stuff at the time. It was so long ago. So he's broke as a joke. Yeah, sadly happens to a lot of those old time Hollywood stars. Get ripped off by their agents in the early days and so forth. Apparently, the axe that gets embedded in the wall next to Linnea Quigley's head was a real axe. Like, you know, obviously, mm. when he chops people, of course, you know, the contact is not real. But, like, there, <laughs> they didn't use a prop axe. And that's a hell of an axe toss. So he throws that son of a bitch across the room. And it just fucking lands in the wall. Whew. Wow. I mean, shit, they have a bar downtown that lets you get drunk and do that shit here. <laughs> Shit, they have, like, they'll bring a bar cart and, uh, like, a mobile version of it to your parties, too. Good God. <laughs> you know, Jeff mentioned that great poster with the Santa coming down the chimney and the arm coming out with the axe that was designed by graphic designer Bert Klieger. So, hats off to you, Bert. You created one of the greatest posters in cinema history. <laughs> And now you can come to downtown Chattanooga and recreate it yourself for Instagram. Phil Donahue also covered the controversy, dedicated an entire hour of his TV show to it. There was a group formed specifically to protest the movie and lobby for it to be removed from theaters. That group was called Citizens Against Movie Madness. Do you think the ladies of that group called themselves cam girls? <laughs> I hope so. I'm going to call him that. <sighs> this would be some broke-ass bitches. <laughs> Iris Toys was named after one of the film's producers. 
It was Ira Barmack. And he had to actually buy back the rights to the movie after TriStar pulled the film from theaters after two weeks amidst the controversy. They also rescinded deals for home video distribution with RCA Columbia and HBO for cable TV distribution. Apparently it's because Columbia TriStar was owned by Coca-Cola and they wanted to avoid offending the company since Christmas was a focal point of their advertising for the year. I mean, that I mean, that does kind of track. That does make sense. It they does. did literally they are responsible for the current iteration of Santa Claus. The red and white suit Santa. And the, the controversy over it being kill, a killer Santa was kind of shocking to the producers because they were fully expecting it to be a controversial film. Uh, they didn't quite expect it to be this national phenomenon, but they were more worried about how people were going to react to how they portrayed the nuns and the Catholic Church. Um, and they were really expecting to, to get a lot of blowback from that. But... Apparently, people just looked right over that and were mad about Santa. <laughs> yeah, the church is like, we're used to it. That's like not even nearly at all the worst thing that's been in a movie about us at all. The uh, sleigh ride title was actually reappropriated for Ernest Saves Christmas, which was absolutely has a scene that's a nod to that script but they recalled renamed it Christmas Sleigh where the main character who is Santa Claus that Ernest is trying to get at least to take on the mantle of Santa Claus uh, is this actor and he's playing a killer in a horror movie and it's just this whole thing but yeah there, there was a, like a small shout out to Silent Night Deadly Night in that movie which I always appreciated I, I can't say I've ever seen Ernest Saves Christmas. So. You should watch it immediately. I don't know about immediately, but well, maybe this month. Uh, maybe I will. Maybe I will not. I, I'm not completely sold yet. I mean, it does have Ernest in it. Ernest Saves Christmas is fantastic. Yeah, it's it's definitely a regular one in our house, but of course, you know, we're Tennessee hillbillies and grew up loving Ernest P. Worrell, so I don't um, know what He's to tell a South you. Carolina hillbilly. I don't know what you're talking about. He's got this show out explaining he's from South Carolina. Yeah, but uh, I did not like Ernest P. Worrell, I'm sorry to say. That, that, I don't believe that I ever thought that was funny once. Fair enough. What's his, what does he say? What does he call people? Uh, the Vern. His, his... Vern. Hey, Vern. Yeah, that's not funny. Burn. That ain't funny. <laughs> Fuck the Ernest P. Worrell. I'm glad he's dead. <laughs> so <laughs> bitch ain't gonna save another Christmas. <laughs> he's done with that shit. So six minutes of footage total was edited out of the movie. Uh, it was actually done by the studio for fear of getting an X rating. So it was done for, out of fear of the MPAA, not out of the direction of the MPAA. So it took the total running time from 85 minutes to 79 minutes. Now, those scenes are added. 
back to the movie on the Scream Factory reissue, and it is amazing. Yes, thank goodness they uh, they put that stuff back in. It doesn't look as good as the rest of the movie, but it's worth it to have those scenes back in the movie. Yeah, absolutely. Like, and a quite a bit of a more amount of gore in those scenes. It's uh, it's all right though if you just pretend you're not watching it on Blu-ray, and that if you just pretend you're streaming it, and like your internet got shitty for just a few seconds. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good way of looking at it. So, unfortunately for Charles Sellier, I you know I mentioned he he really didn't talk about it much, and I guess here's why: he apparently led to him having difficulty finding more work, and it forced him to retire from directing and focus on producing instead. So, bah, bah. I, maybe he had some legitimate reasons, and I want to talk about it. Not not the best of memories, I guess, from Killer Santa. He got coal in his stocking that year. <laughs> Just a little. And, of course, the movie ends with Billy being gunned down and it panning up to Ricky uttering naughty. Of course, right at the out of the gate they're thinking sequel the franchise by 1984 is already a thing we're well into halloween three at that point we are well into multiple friday the 13th uh though you know they're aiming for franchise and they do a great job of setting that up with the little brother uh just right there uttering that last line yes oh yeah i knew immediately and of course, we'll talk about Ricky and his future later. That's that's for next year on Silent Night, Deadly Night Two. But now we're done telling the story of the film, so it's time to put up or shut up. Let's look at the numbers. Numbers on the beat. So this movie was released on November 9th, 1984, and unfortunately was pulled a short two weeks later, as we mentioned in the auditorium. The original theatrical runtime was 79 minutes, and that unrated cut after the uh, cut footage was put back in, again, six minutes, if you can do that math, is 85 minutes. Originally, the budget was $750,000, and it made a box office of $2.5 million. So despite all the efforts of all those Karens out there trying to ruin all of our fun, they did make quite a bit of money. So, you know, good job for them. And if you were curious, the body count for our Christmas killer Santa was 14. So, you know, overall, decent numbers. This is also another one that's worth mentioning that it also hit really big in the home video era. So when you look at total box office, that's theatrical, but you have to imagine they made quite a killing on the home video market. Yeah, so it on opening weekend alone, it uh, finished eighth 
it grossed uh, $1.43 million. It actually outgrossed uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, which, we, again, we mentioned earlier. Um, but it, you know, was in more theaters and then ended up being pulled from theaters again. But in that 10 days of release, it it made that $2.5 million. Uh, so, I mean, that's not a bad pull for 10 days in, you know, 1984. Not at all. And it got a little theatrical re-release in 2013, uh, which had a little run. And it's, I mean, now I've seen it pop up at drive-ins and other things at like one-offs this year, especially because of COVID. They've, you know, doing a lot of drive-in themed movie showings across the country. Uh, None here or anywhere near me, unfortunately. But uh, I did see that there were several places doing like Christmas themed Silent Night, Deadly Night double features with like hot cocoa and shit like that. I thought it was pretty cool. That'd be fucking cool. That is great. So would would be nice to see that. So it's got, got quite a bit of legacy. Of course, you know, we, we talked all about all of the controversy and, and everything up in the auditorium. So I won't go too much further into that. We know that basically uh, the all of the chaos and hysteria surrounding it are also what drove so many people to it. And because there is just always that desire to seek the taboo. The great thing is it doesn't disappoint, you know, when you seek it out and (laughs) it really delivers on the horror and the violence of, you know, a good 80s slasher movie. When the when the guy gets thrown through the window and then they show him out there on the ground later and he's got the big, huge panes of glass stuck in his face and body, you know, it's. It's really strong horror. So, yeah, oh, the kills are just all top notch. Like every single one of them, from where he he strings the dude up with the fucking Christmas lights to the cutting the dude's head off coming down the hill on the sled, which is just one of the greatest. And then the fucking headless body comes down <laughs> the sled. I mean, my god. It's so awesome. The guy's just screaming. It's the headless body comes, and then the head rolls down, and he's just, ah, ah. It's just, man. Yeah, all the kills are are top-notch. But I do love that you you mentioned that that it because there's so many things that you're like you're not supposed to see or you hear or oh this this horrible thing that you just have to feast your eyes on that it's the the most depraved thing imaginable and the final time you see it it doesn't live up to the hype and Silent Night Deadly Night it lives up to the hype it just has this sleazy quality about it that I love so much. All right. Well, I'm not even going to go through the critical responses on this one either because we know they all fucking hated it. It didn't get any love. It didn't get, I mean, there were a couple of places that might have praised individual performances like Mother Superior and Sister Margaret, but nobody came out and said this was a good movie. Most places panned it. Uh, most places joined in on the pylon and tried to get it removed from theaters as well. And it still, in 2020, is kicking and screaming. So fuck all those motherfuckers. What a bunch of dicks. <laughs> so, Annie, tell us a little bit about the home video history and where you can get it now. 
Yeah, it's a little messy, actually. Um, it was originally released on VHS in 1986. So, you know, they took a little bit of a break. Um, then they released it through USA Home Video. And then it was re-released again in 87 by International Video Entertainment. But by 1991, the home video, video rights were transferred to Avid Home Entertainment. And so they re-released it again. And then they released it three times on DVD in the United States uh, by Anger Bay. And the first time was a double feature disc. And that um, had the sequel. And that was in 2003. And then the second release was in 07. And then those are out of print. So if you have those, you can probably eBay those. And then in the UK, you finally got your copies in 09 from Arrow Video. And that set included an audio interview with the director um, that Dan mentioned earlier. And also a poster and a booklet. That included the deadly director, um, which in which was an interview, and a another part of the booklet was the Silent Night, Sex Night, the Slice and Times of Lene Quigley. Sounds interesting. I want to find that. So it was also re-released in 2012 with part two as a two-disc featurette or double feature, I'm sorry. And that had pretty much all the same information and bonus features. Again, in 2014, it was released on Blu-ray. And then finally, we have Shout Factory coming in in 2017. And that's the two-disc collector's edition Blu-ray and DVD that has the remastered 4K resolution that came from the original negative. This is the one that you're going to want to purchase if you do not already own a copy. This also contains new special features such as an interview and audio commentary with some of the actors and some of the producers, as well as the writer and music composer and editor. Um, it also has a new documentary on the film and um, the original theatrical trailer and radio and TV spots. So all those controversial things that we were talking about earlier in the episode, if you were wondering, what did that look like? What was so crazy about that? Well, you can, you can throw on an episode of Little House on the Prairie and then watch the TV spot in the middle and get the full experience. Um, so that's, that's really the one that you're really going to want to get. And that also, uh, they also released a limited edition deluxe offer version of that. And that had a, uh, a 18 by 24 poster with the original, with new artwork for the film and an action figure of Billy in a Santa suit. And so I know what I have been tasked with. I know why this note has been included, uh, for me to read. <laughs> Um, I am getting this hint loud and clear. Got it. Cool. Back to you, Dan. <laughs> yeah, gotta say the the Scream Factory is the definitive edition. Like it, it's every Silent Night, Deadly Night fans' dream release of this film. Documentary is great. I used a lot of that to learn about the story that I'm used for the notes here tonight. Um, just a really fantastic release. Yeah, for reference, guys, uh, Dan collects uh, horror action figures uh, and especially really hard to find ones. So, <laughs> I want that Billy. 
gotta have a Billy. I've got a Billy and a Ricky myself. So I somehow knew you did. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I also have. I still have my international VHS copy of this movie and the the Anchor Bay double feature DVD release, and of course the the Shout Factory classic quality. That's excellent. And just the legacy of the film beyond the controversy is it spawned a lot of sequels, none of which um, I, I don't think even two, as great as it is, it like captures what the first one does. But two is fucking awesome as well. Um, I, I, I mean, I love two. So I, I don't know that I would I would say that. I mean, because two gives you so much of one and then all the new of two. So it's, it, it is a special experience for people to see. Yeah. I can't wait to, to cover that one next year. Cause it's got some just like all time great scenes and horror in it. So I, I'm looking forward to that a year in the future. Um, and then the other sequels, most of which are straight to video. Um, they all have their merits. You know, if you like shitty late night mo- cable horror movies, like I do, I think you can find something to enjoy. Uh, part three has Bill Mosley paying, a playing a bit of a touched version of Ricky. Who's like had a lobotomy. Um, and he, of course, capitalizing on the uh, Friday, the 13th part seven, they have like a, a chick who's got psychic powers battling him. <laughs> And then uh, four is about a coven of witches and Clint Howard is in it doing some fucked up shit. Uh, Kind of barely even mentions Christmas, I think. And then, of course, we mention the toy maker where Mickey Rooney plays a Geppetto like character bringing a (laughs) fucked up Pinocchio to life. God. Sounds awful. They fall off a cliff after two. I mean, that's 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 fair to say. I mean, off a cliff. They really do. The the best sequel, honestly, is the remake. Outside of two, of course, like two is great, but the, the as we've discussed, but the the other ones are dog shit. But the 2012 remake is not bad. It's got some really fucking gnarly kill scenes in it. Yeah, Silent Night is pretty violent and pretty bloody it's it's got some great kills it's it's it's, it's really good it, it doesn't have the charm of, of the original but it's definitely got the violence down pat yeah it's very mean and nasty so definitely <laughs> to watch um I, I saw somebody say it would make a great pairing with Black Xmas, which is another <laughs> Christmas remake that I, I think is kind of because the new Black Christmas and, you know, all due respect to the filmmakers, I fucking hated like it was fucking I thought it was terrible. Um, but the like, the first Black Christmas remake, the Black Xmas with like the jaundiced Billy stabbing people with candy canes and shit, I thought was pretty good. Yes, I, I agree. I like that one as well. All right. Yeah. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say that the, the the more recent one, I believe, was like a PG one, so it was it was particularly terrible. It was PG thirteen, and it was like they cut. Uh, it was shot as an R, and they cut all of the gore out of it. And like, I get they were going for a certain audience, but I just don't. I felt like they just pissed off all of the people that might have liked it and didn't connect with the audience they were trying to reach. Yeah, they made nobody happy. 
So that was that. But before we get into our final thoughts, we have a burial plot. And in this case, we're going to go back to the seance board and summon the the spirit of Grandpa Chapman. And he is going to tell you the story of Silent Night, Deadly Night on the burial plot. It is now time to uncover the burial plot. Mom? What do you want her for? She can't help you. Nobody can. You're scared, ain't you? You should be. Christmas Eve is the scariest damn night of the year. I'd be scared too if I was you. You know what happens on Christmas Eve, don't you? You know all about Santa Claus? He brings presents to all the boys and girls. <laughs> Your daddy told you that, didn't he? Well, I'll tell you something. Santa Claus only brings presents to them that's been good all year. To the ones that ain't done nothing naughty. Naughty! All the other ones? All the naughty ones? He punishes! What about you, boy? You been good all year? You see Santa Claus tonight. You better run, boy! You better run! For your life! <laughs> but I bet you won't. You're just gonna stand there with that shit-stained look on your face, ain't you? Mouth open, drawing flies. Watching your daddy probably get beheaded or some shit, and your mama be assaulted, and you just gotta stand there like a dick in a hen house. Uh, it's just as well. Final thoughts on Silent Night, Deadly Night. There's a lot of Christmas horror films to choose from, but when you're making your selection of Christmas horror, I would implore you to put this one at the very top of your list. It is my personal favorite holiday horror film, but I've got a lot of them that I like. Now, I'm a, I wouldn't count, like, Halloween and stuff in that, like, but I, especially Christmas horror, like, Gremlins, I love. Fucking dear to my heart, one of the first movies I saw in the theater, like, one of my first tastes of horror as a young kid. Like, Gremlins means a lot to me, but Silent Night, Deadly Night is my favorite. It's that dirty, sleazy, you're not supposed to watch it. Um, I remember the first commercial that I saw for it disturbing me. I remember the article on Entertainment Tonight making me uh, captivated and enticed that I wanted to see it. And uh, it, it's never disappointed. And all these years later, I go back to it every single year. And um, I think for uh, what was a rare, fairly low-budget horror film for a major studio, it's chock full of really strong performances, great gore, great music. Uh, it tells a story with the killer that a lot of slashers don't. And... Um, yeah, it just the, the fact that it struck so much fear into the heart of the nation uh, just makes it real, real special to me. 
Yes, so uh, as I mentioned earlier, this was uh, the first time I had seen this film. Um, and I really enjoyed it. There was definitely some less than stellar moments. Like, is it is it going to win any Academy Awards? No. Is it going to win any awards? Maybe if they had given it a shot. Um, specifically for some of that, like, like maybe, like, best original soundtrack. That shit was fire. Um, but this was a really fun movie. Um, I, I, I thought it, like I said, it was fun. Um, no, it's not a hundred percent a new idea. Of course, we've seen a killer Santa before, but you know, it does focus more on who he was before he was a killer Santa because he only kills for like the last like five minutes of the movie. Um, which is really interesting and makes you much more invested into the character, which is nice for a change of pace. Uh, but yeah, I would suggest this to anybody who lived through the time period who didn't watch it because their mom told them it wasn't safe. Uh, and for anybody who wants just a fun, Christmas horror movie because it was a good time. Oh, is this me? Yes. Um, well, first, thanks for having me on to talk about Silent Night, Deadly Night. There's, there's no movie I would rather talk about more other than maybe part two as I really love this movie. Um, when I started thinking about what my favorite horror movies were, I realized that uh, I've had this on VHS since like the late 80s and I've bought it on DVD, I've bought it on Blu-ray. Me and my wife have been together almost 20 years now and we watch it every October and every December. So, uh, that's a lot of viewings that I've, I've given this movie and uh, I never get tired of it and I've never showed it to anybody who didn't like it. I mean, just if they laugh at naughty and punish and, you know, people getting their heads cut off with axes and, you know, there's just so many great still shots where they go in for close-ups of the axe dripping blood, you know, all these great moments that really shine as still photographs that really grab your attention and make you go, this is really something else. And uh, the whole Santa Claus thing, um, they really handle it well as far as, you know, the story it tells. And it really gets into the psychological aspect of, you know, how fucked up a kid can be. <laughs> and uh, I don't know. It's one of those movies that just really stands the test of time. It doesn't feel dated at all when I watch it. And uh, I never get tired of watching it or talking about it. And uh, I look forward to getting out to a convention and getting my picture with Billy 
or Ricky in their damn Santa outfits holding a red axe and uh, hanging that up with the poster on my wall because uh, this is my horror movie of horror movies. Man, that's uh, well said by the legendary pro wrestling manager, agent attorney Jeff G. Bailey, and that's exactly why we had him on as the special guest, because I know he could pay a just tribute to this great Christmas horror film, and that's going to do it for another Very Seeking Human Victims Christmas for 2020, the year of utter dog shit for everyone across the world, uh, we wish you a much better 2021. We will be back the first week of January, kicking off season nine of Seeking Human Victims as we look into the twisted mind of Clive Barker. You want to talk about perversions and taboos. There's not a guy who does it much better. And we are going to look at the history of his adaptations into film, starting with the film Underworld, released as Transmutations in the UK. Uh, of course, it'll include Hellraiser and more. You definitely don't want to miss the Clive Barker Terror Timeline Season 9 coming in January but until then we wish you all the best for a healthy and happy new year and holy fuck it's gotta be better than this one thank you for joining us I am the Rev good night Santa's watching, Santa's waiting, Christmas Eve is slowly fading, can you hear him in the night? Close the door, turn out the light. Santa's watching, Santa's creeping, now you're nodding, now you're sleeping, were you good for mom and dad? Santa knows if you've been bad There might be a treat for you In Santa's bag of toys But Christmas won't be fun and games For naughty girls and boys Santa's watching, Santa's waiting This is not a test. This is not a test. Please remain calm. Unburied dead are coming back to life and seeking human victims. Seeking human victims. The Seeking Human Victims podcast is a product of One Good Scare Productions. It is written, researched, directed, and edited by Dan Wilson. The burial plot segments are written by Muji Grant. 
Original music provided by KT Grant. All other music and audio clips are property of their respective owners. Visit us online at ogscareproductions.com or on Twitter and Facebook at ogscare. Every night 